Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Tennis Weekly with Joel and Kim, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. On today's book club, we chat with Daily Mail's tennis writer Mike Dixon about his new book, Emma Raducanu, When Tennis Came Home. Kim, we've got another book club to look forward to this evening. And what better way to get in the mood for the road to the US Open than talking about the career so far of Emma Raducanu? Yeah, I know. It's amazing to think that this time last year we were heading off to the start of the US Open swing onto Flushing Meadows, completely unaware that a new British Grand Slam champion was just around the corner waiting to be born out on the, uh, the courts of New York. And uh, it's great to welcome Mike Dixon to Tennis Weekly HQ this evening. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm fine, thanks. I've just got over the heat wave, survived that. <laughs> yeah, it's been a pretty uh, interesting week weather-wise in the UK, but definitely cooled down now, which is, is a relief. I'm just glad we didn't have these temperatures at Wimbledon because that would have been a bit of a, a nightmare. Um, but I mean, obviously, we're recording this a few weeks post Wimbledon. How, how was your time at the at the tournament, Mike? Did you, uh, what were your lasting impressions of this year's championships? Well, it was a bit of a, I suppose it was a bit of a strange one. I mean, I mean work-wise, it was incredibly busy. Um, I, I thought it was a slightly, a slightly odd Wimbledon. Um, I felt that the the shadow of the the sort of Ukraine Russia business slightly fell over it. Um, interestingly, actually, I was another part of my duties. I was covering the Open Golf at uh, St Andrews last week, and there was absolutely no recognition of the whole Ukraine thing to be seen there. It was as if it wasn't happening, um, which was in quite stark contrast to Wimbledon. I thought it, it was a pretty good Wimbledon. I mean, the usual kind of the women's event completely unpredictable. Um, the men's event, I thought, fairly predictable in that Djokovic, um, you know, shows that he's still uh, a class of class above most people, particularly on grass. Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, he hit the nail on the head with both of those, really. It was uh, kind of a tale of two halves, isn't it, with the, the men's and the women's tournaments? Um, and yeah, like you said, I think Wimbledon kind of have gone out on their own a bit with the... The, their response to the the Russian-Ukraine uh, conflict. But, um, I mean, let's talk about your book, which is the reason that you're you're with us today. Um, you've written this fantastic book on, on Emma Raducanu and uh, her, her rise to to where she is now on, on the WTA tour, um, you know, her early years down in Bromley and, uh, you know, playing the the juniors and the futures events and, uh, and then, you know, last year, that incredible year. So, um, I mean, let's start at the beginning and go through, um, you know, prior to her breakout season you write about her early years I mean what before before last year happened Mike what were your views on on Emma Raducanu just from following her you know following tennis and knowing about her as a youngster did you foresee that you know what was going to happen would would happen um absolutely not um that in terms of the US Open, I mean, I don't think anyone who claims they knew that was going to (laughs) happen is uh telling porkies um I mean Emma, for those of us who are kind of meant to be sort of plugged into the British game, even prior to Wimbledon, um, she was known certainly to me to be an unusually good prospect. There's no doubt about that. Um, And I'd spoken to quite a few people about her and 
as you may have seen the book, I actually had met her before I'd come across her. Um, and there's no doubt she she looked like an unusual talent, uh, definitely one to keep an eye on. But it happened perhaps three or four years ahead of time. I mean, no one coming into last summer could have foreseen what was going to happen with her. Um, and it's almost like she crammed three years into three months, basically. Um, and that was even on the most optimistic uh, scenario. But I think if you if you ask people who are sort of quite embedded in the British tennis scene, there's no doubt she was reckoned to be a very good prospect. But, um, you know, clearly what she did was utterly extraordinary. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. You, you talk about her being a prospect and I feel like there's always, uh, you know, prospects in, in, in British tennis and sometimes they come to fruition and, and sometimes they take, you know, a little bit of time and, and sadly there are some times when they, you know, they, it just doesn't materialise for, for whatever reason. Just talking about Radicani before she got famous, particularly with the, you know, the, the British public, I mean, why do, why do you think, you know, did you have a feeling that she could go all the way and, and win a you know and win a grand slam what did you think her kind of uh you know her height her or her ceiling was in terms of for these some of these players just making it onto the tour is a you know is an achievement but did you have a, a an inkling or a feeling it could be something even greater well i mean to be honest i had no idea really any it is quite, always quite an interesting exercise to put a ceiling on a player you look at someone you think well what's you know what's going to be there sort of outer limit. Um, I mean, a good example is Cam, of one we, we all got wrong, I think. Is Cam Norrie, I don't think anyone mm. really has expected uh, Cam. You know, my ceiling for him informally was sort of, I thought, well, he'll have a solid career, you know, could have a few good years when he gets to around 30 or 40. I, I'd never envisaged him. But I've seen, and that's based on having watched him a lot and sort of had quite a lot to do with him. Um, and most of us got that one completely wrong, I think including sort of amongst the professional people as well in the game. Um, the, I mean, the context of Emma that in, in which you asked the question, of course, is the pandemic, and she pretty much, you know, vanished from... I mean, she was never in public sight, really, because she hadn't done that much, but obviously, like a lot of players, she completely vanished during the pandemic, and that sort of added to the mystery and the lack of familiarity. I mean, if the pandemic hadn't happened, I suspect that her results would have happened a bit quicker and more people would have had an inkling about her prior to last summer. But obviously, she she just was not very visible, and it was quite an interesting exercise doing the book, actually having to sort of dig up the unofficial events that she'd played in um, because she didn't play on the tour between February 2020 and June 2021. That's a long time to be sort of off the radar. And, of course, most of those events in that time, well, virtually all of them, actually, um, you couldn't go to as a member of the media anyway. Um, So she was, you know, a very largely unknown figure. I mean, I remember meeting her in actually the last event that she played prior to the pandemic, which was up in Sunderland in in 2020. And I I write about this uh, in the book. And I do remember I I actually, as it happened, and it was it was a kind of happy coincidence, really. I ended up sitting down with her there and having a coffee with her and a couple of other people 
um, which in hindsight was a very interesting exercise. And, you know, it wasn't an interview as such or anything. We were just sort of talking. And um, I, I do remember sort of clocking. I, I can't remember the, you know, in depth that conversation, but I do remember thinking sort of after she sort of got up and walked away at the time thinking, you know, that's one to keep an eye on. She's got quite a lot about her as a person. Um, and clearly she had something about her as a player. You could just tell that by her raw results. Um, so I, I definitely, after that conversation that we had, um, kind of made several mental notes about her. But that's obviously completely different to thinking, well, in 18 months, she's going to be winning the US Open. Yeah, it's um I mean it's it's just with lockdown was su- such a unique entity. It's it's I mean if you had to put a um put a word on it, would you say that lockdown like hindered her then because you you were saying, you know, she would have broken through perhaps a a year earlier or do you think it might have helped her in some way because like when she then, you know, started playing the tournaments again there was that more of a surprise factor because we just hadn't really seen yeah. her do anything official for like a good year. Would you say it just you know was it more of a help or a hindrance I mean if you can kind of define it at all uh well I mean clearly the record shows that it wasn't much of a hindrance yeah the <laughs> US Open at 18 so yeah. what um you know that that's a sort of point of fact I guess um I know I, th- I just think that it probably would have happened she would have been a bit better known that's all I think and it, it would have been a bit more of a gentle incline if you like but I mean, one of the things that struck me about her when I talked to her, I remember, was she was clearly very serious about her A-levels. So it's not like that I think she would have played probably a massive amount, even if we you know, had normal times, not had this wretched um, pandemic to contend with. So I think it would have been a gentle upwards incline, but possibly there would have been some, you know, the odd eye-catching result along the way that would have attracted more people's... uh, more people's attention. I mean, the downside possibly of the of, of that for her going forward, and you know, and what's happened subsequent to the U twenty twenty one US Open, um, is clearly she missed out on a lot of steps, um, and possibly you know some of the physical work that she would have put in in the meantime. Um, so, I guess you could say maybe long term the effect of it would be more profound possibly than um, the short-term effect because she obviously came as a bolt from the blue pretty much straight after the pandemic because obviously Wimbledon Wimbledon happened only fairly shortly, you know, after the lockdown ended, didn't it? Mm. Yeah, I think it's interesting you talk about the balance she she wanted uh you know with education and tennis because i feel like we you know read about kind of these super talents and they get put into tennis coaching from a very very young age and it's just tennis 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 100 percent in and you know for emma it felt quite different there was certainly it felt more of a a balance there and you know maybe because of that she did miss out on physical conditioning opportunities to play maybe even on the on the junior tour because for me it was a it was a surprising in the sense there wasn't like that sort of smooth transition up the up the tours yes she did play below like that WTA level for a little bit but it happened so quickly didn't it and there wasn't really you know much to go on from that sort of junior level I think you know particularly at the junior grand slams she didn't win any of them or I don't think she got 
that that far in them so for me it just made it all the more impressive that um she was then able to just go from lockdown and then go into the you know the big stage um of it all the wta tour and, and do what she did yeah i mean she's she's spoken quite uh extensively about how possibly the lockdown you know the, the relative lack of op- playing opportunities although actually you know when i came to look at it i did realize that she did actually play you know a, a, a smattering of tournaments during that period but she's spoken quite extensively about how it kind of made her you know even more hungry um and she was a, i think by the time lockdown ended she was a bit of a coiled spring in that way um really you know ready to go for it and also perhaps with a bit more freedom knowing that her her a levels um were out of the way but clearly she did miss out on some developmental steps even if it didn't look like it uh, during those few weeks at flushing meadows you talk about the the bromley effect in uh, in the book about how she's living within like 10 minutes of a you know a big international indoor indoor tennis center i should say and that's how so- some people have prophesized that as being you know you can't make a, a grand slam champion unless you've got that facility close and you also talk about how supportive her her parents and her family are and having that kind of stable upbringing do you think i mean what's along with kind of her attitude to the game and and her obviously her her physical talents in the game what do you think is the kind of defining or kind of her her defining attributes that have propelled her to become you know a, a now a grand slam champion like what are the things that stand out f- for you having met her and followed her career so far to this point well there's, there's a couple of things there um i think the bromley uh, you're right one of the chapters i think is called the bromley effect um but i i think obviously there's a lot of very promising british players who've been born you know in, into perhaps um good circumstances in terms of training facilities and things like that who of course haven't made it um but there's no doubt and uh, simon dardy one of our early coaches made made this point to me that probably there couldn't be many better places for an aspiring tennis player you know to happen to be brought up in than uh, around the bromley area because there's a lot of good competition there and some good clubs good coaches uh it's etc etc um so yeah, the I mean the, the the Bromley thing, I think is quite important. Uh, you know, in in terms of it gave her the opportunities. I suppose if you're asking me, the defining thing about her to me would probably be this kind of curiosity that she has, and that her her parents had. Um, and I, I've seen it quite a lot in tennis where parents and the player they're not very curious. Um, slightly kind of expect it to fall into place for them a bit. Um, Whereas, you know, world tennis kind of shows you that the people who succeed in it generally are those who really go out and get it. And I think one of the things that that comes through in in the book and certainly all the people I spoke to was this kind of insatiable quest for knowledge and wisdom. And this is partly tied up with why she's had a lot of coaches um, because both her and her father and her mother, I suspect, um, to some extent, they're, they're gleaners of information and pearls of wisdom. And they, they, they ask a lot. Everyone says about them, you know, they ask a lot of questions, always keen to sort of get an edge knowledge-wise, 
and that's definitely something that that I think stands out from her compared to sort of most young players I would have come across. British players, I say that. Yeah, I think already we've seen the number of, of coaches being associated with, with, with Raducanu. And as you say, it's sort of growing up, it felt like, again, she has had this sort of appetite to, you know, just learn learn about the game. And it feels like maybe that's something you can't teach. It's like some sort of innate thing inside you that keeps you motivated and and keeps you going and do you think kind of having actually that like diversity in terms of you know having you know speaking to coaches speaking to family speaking to whoever and getting all those different insights perhaps helped her understand and approach the game from all these different angles that you're only going to get if you go out there and speak to all these people when at a junior level when you're so raw even regardless of, of how talented you are, it helps you, I think, it helps you kind of apply that talent to putting it into practice and putting yourself out onto the court. Yeah, you've got to, I mean, first of all, you've got to have the talent uh, to be able to execute it. Um, but there's no doubt, I mean, you look at someone like Djokovic um, or, or Andy Murray actually would be another example. I would say, um, I mean, I could cite other individuals, but I'd use them as examples of very much a similar thing. You know, I think they are both uh, players, you know, who frantically looking for knowledge and, you know, focused on self-improvement. Um, and, you know, in tennis, and this is possibly where sort of elaborate national systems can fall down, is that you are out there on your own and it's a pretty tough tough road to the top. I mean, say, compare it to a Premier League. If you say a really outstanding young footballer, say, um, what will happen is that you'll probably get spotted playing for your local junior team or whatever. Uh, Clubs will come in for you. And from that moment onwards, the club will remove every barrier there is. If they rate you, uh, they'll remove every barrier to try and get you to the top because it's very much in their interests and financially it's very much in their interests. Tennis is almost the opposite in that, you know, there are these huge barriers to progress in that it's very international. It's quite expensive um, to, I mean, tennis is not an expensive game to play per se, but it is a very expensive game to get to an elite level at. Um, So there are all these kind of barriers and this has been one of the issues probably in Britain and other countries, in that you know it is it is quite a there's a lot of things to overcome, and you know one of the things in the Radicanu story, I think, is that there's been this sort of willingness to take on the challenge and to learn as much as they can about what it takes to meet that challenge. Yeah, and I think um, I think she's shown that like she's obviously still got that curiosity now. All the all the, the coaching changes recently, and I think you know we. And I know there's been a lot in the media, a lot of people have perhaps been quite harsh about it. But I think from your perspective, like this brings that into light and you can understand a lot more about about it all now from, you know, she's always had this sort of different insight and uh, that's been a, a core part of her development. I mean, let's move on to um, to last year. Obviously, your book kind of follows it, it through chronologically and, you know, we kind of go to Wimbledon and she's just finished her A-levels and she's given a, a wild card into the main draw of Wimbledon, um, which incidentally, I don't think the AELTC were going to give her a main draw wild card initially. And I think was it um, Nigel Sears, I think, um, sort of said, oh, no, you should be 
you know, giving her a main draw while not just wanting to qualies, um, which obviously has proved to be a, a wise move. Um, I mean, what were your, it's very difficult, I, I would imagine now that having, you know, having had the success at the US Open to think back to the start of Wimbledon 2021, Mike, but what were your initial thoughts and or expectations of, of her, you know, in the main draw at Wimbledon for the first time and thinking to what happened, you know, getting to the fourth round. I mean, what were your kind of, overriding impressions of that kind of 10 days at Wimbledon for Emma? Well, if I just take you back uh, on the subject of wildcards and stuff, take you back uh, a couple of weeks before that, because um, a few of the the tennis writers, um, there were various issues still with getting to the French Open with COVID stuff. Um, And a few of us went up to Nottingham, um, if you recall, um, that was her comeback tournament. Well, her first tournament after the pandemic. Um, and we we went up there and I think she played Harriet Dart on the first day at about 5.30 at night. Um, and a, quite a lot has happened that day. Um, I think Joe Contra had given a press conference. So this is in the context of 15 months ago and Emma Raducanu is pretty unknown. Um and there'd been quite a dramatic match with Francesca Jones, who I think had been taken off in a wheelchair. Katie Bolter, who's almost a local, I think she'd won. And by the time Emma got on to play Harriet Dart, we were sort of busy writing up stuff from earlier in the day. And I think I looked over the fence briefly at this Radicanu dart match, and Dart won kind of as predicted, I guess. Um 6363 or something, 6364, maybe. I, I, it was quite a comfortable win anyway. And we pretty much no one took any notice of it, really, at the time that we were sort of looking the other way at stuff. So, really, uh, you know, even by the time Wimbledon started, and there was this slight rigmarole, I remember, about the wild card. She was originally given one to qualifying, and then she had a couple of good results at Nottingham the week after, where they staged a smaller tournament. Um, so really she went into Wimbledon still very much under the radar, even though having, she'd played, uh, two grass court events. Um, and again, I think she, I think her first match of Wimbledon was rain delayed, didn't go on till the Wednesday and something, loads of big things happened the day she got her first win. And really the only time, the first time people took notice of her was when she beat, uh, Vondra Sova in the second round there. Um, and I, I actually wasn't covering that match. Um, I was doing something else. And it, it really took off from there at an incredible pace. And then there was the match on the Saturday where she beat, um, I think, Serana Kirstia of Romania. And then, of course, by the Monday, you know, there was a sort of Emma mania was in full swing. So, it, I mean, it literally swung within four or five days of, you know, oh, well, there's this player who's had a reasonable win in the first round so sort of national mania almost um it was extraordinary actually yeah it's it's funny you talk about wild cards because i feel like that's always a you know a delicate topic particularly for british wild cards given you know the history and the feeling that the aeltc back in the day it felt very much like if you were a, a British hope, then you were going to get a wild card into the main draw and that would be a, a payday for you. So it's interesting to hear that it felt like quite, um, you know, there was certainly, it felt like some skept- like some skeptics initially 
And I feel like, you know, when you get, if you are in the qualifying draw, there's an absolute kind of lottery there. You know, the qualifying draws, you know, I was there there this year. It can be, it can be a real battle to get through to just even play the main draw. So it was, I think, great for her to get automatic entry in. And I think, you know, with those first two rounds, it's certainly like a bit of fun and games and it's, it's all great seeing a first win. But as you said, that third round coming up against Castella and defeating her in straight sets, I think it really pricked up the ears of a, of a lot of people and I think it was great I think to see it at Wimbledon given it's a, a showcase for, for British sport and the casual and the casual fans I mean just talking about that what why do you think the fans I guess obviously she, she's British but why do you think they took her in so kind of receptively I think in terms of cheering her on coming through the draws getting behind her do you think like there was a natural sort of chemistry between her and the crowd? Well, I think I think anyone who any Brit who does well at Wimbledon, we mm. saw it this year, um, you know, becomes big news. I mean, it's such a massive national event that it doesn't really matter who you are um, if you start doing well. But I mean, there was the Cinderella element to it, I guess, and the fact that she was someone no one had heard of, no one outside the sort of parish of tennis, if you like. Um, so, and, you know, the fact that she spoke very well, um, she's a great-looking woman, um, all those things, you know, she's a lot of charisma, the way she played. I mean, Vondrasova was a good win, you know, that was, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. she she obviously broke all our hearts with uh, Joe Contra at the French Open in 2019. Mm. Um, Kim's, Kim's still not over it. Oh, yeah. so, so <laughs> disappointing that was. <laughs> um, and... You know, all those things, you know, the the kind of the full package, if you like, really was suddenly there. Um, and obviously, I, and there was a sort of joyful innocence about it. Um, so it, it did take off. And I think Cam Norrie and Dan Evans both lost on the Saturday. So come the Monday, she's the last sort of Brit left in. And I think I think quite a few of us expected her to beat Tom Lanovich. Um and possibly she would have done had she been scheduled in the afternoon, I think, and not had all that build-up because... Uh, yeah, it was a long time to wait around, wasn't it? It, it was, yeah. And, you know, the, the, the scheduling obviously was was quite controversial. Um, and it was a lot for her, I think, to have to handle at that age, um, you know, to sort of handle your emotions waiting all that time. And she'd barely ever played under lights, you know, and then suddenly you're in this pretty full stadium. Um, because I think the stadium was up to 75% capacity, if I remember rightly, by then. So it was a lot to take in. And then, obviously, she lost very dramatic, you know, or she retired in a very dramatic fashion. And then, of course, she disappeared again, really. Um, you know, the, sort of, as we as we see at this time of year, the interest drops off a cliff after Wimbledon. And she, she quietly went off to America. And what was your impression, like, just immediately post-Wimbledon? There was, I remember some segments of the press, or I, I think, um, you know, pundits and tennis commentators, they were quite critical of Emma and, and the fact that she had those breathing difficulties on the court and, you know, that this was evidence that she wouldn't be able to cope. And, you know, obviously she's proved that wrong, uh, you know, proved the naysayers wrong at the US Open, r- definitely rising to the pressure. But you know, at the time, did you think, oh, you know, this is sort of yet another example of perhaps, you know, we've seen it with other British players, like that crumbling under under pressure. Did, did you have sort of real concerns that this could 
not know, not really no. the future <laughs> no not really and, and you find that a lot of the people the sort of blowhards on twitter um who got involved in it you know they they know nothing about the subject um so no i mean and also while i can see that people possibly you know the casual viewers on tv it probably looked quite shocking to them um i'm sure you have seen it you know watching a lot of tennis that this kind of this thing of players becoming overwrought is it's not the first time it's happened and it's not the last time um so i i didn't i mean in terms of you know thinking oh maybe she can't handle it um yeah that 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 didn't seem to me to be an issue i was actually a bit more if i if i was getting cross about anything it was the scheduling actually um which i thought was was quite wrong and and sort of wimbledon getting their priorities mixed up um so that yeah that didn't um that you know that that particular aspect didn't bother me um but that still doesn't mean to say i thought she would win the us open <laughs> yeah the uh it, it felt like you know with the fact that she didn't come back onto the court it felt like there was there was unfinished business there and um you felt that going into you know the the, you know, the american hardcourt swing as a tennis fan yes there were going to be the casual fans that, that dropped off but it certainly i think put her on the you know the map and everyone i think was curious to see how she would translate that grass court form into kind of the you know into the hard courts i mean you were there in in new york at flashing meadows and were your expectations raised because of you know what you had seen at wimbledon or were you still kind of nervous about uh, you know given what you know what had happened and the fact that you know this wasn't going to be getting a wild card into the main draw and you know you're going to start in round one this was starting at the very very beginning in qualifying very very few people in in the crowds it felt like to me like a lot a much tougher kind of proposition yeah I think it it was physically and she was clear I should say that I wasn't there at the qualifying um but I did actually watch uh streams of it um and you know she came through that she beat a good player in the final round Maya Sharif I remember watching that thinking blimey she's playing well here um I mean the, the the match that really stood out was the third round when she played the Spaniard Cerebus, Cerebus Tormo, yes. Which was an I thought you were gonna say that. A quite extraordinary performance. Mm. And, and and I remember sitting there on court I think it was court seventeen, um with my colleague. There were very few journalists there because um people couldn't get visas or their passports had run out and things like that. Um but a colleague of mine had come up from Miami, who's based in Miami, had a British guy, Steve Brenner, um, had come up to cover the US Open for the Sun from Miami because he didn't have the travel issues, obviously. Uh, and the two of us sort of just watching this, looking at each other. Um, and I think Stuart Fraser from The Times was there as well. And, you know, afterwards we were just like gobsmacked about this performance. It was, she absolutely destroyed her. And the thought did enter your head. Um, well, you know, no one could have battered this very good Spanish player any more easily than Emma Raducanu had just done. Again, that the- you don't necessarily think she's going to win the tournament, but I mean, mm. it did make you sit bolt upright and realise just how good she was. 
so I mean that was probably yeah like the first in- inclination oh gosh she's playing amazingly you know she's really got the potential here but at what stage did that switch to oh she could actually go all the way you know was that kind of quarterfinals well, semifinals not till the final or were you just thinking no let's not let's not even imagine what could be <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you when actually I can give you almost the precise moment it was when she <laughs> oh, yeah. won the first set against Belinda Bencic in the quarterfinal uh because Bencic got off to a good start and then Raducanu staged you know one of these kind of surges that were a hallmark of that fortnight and um I can kind of remember thinking to myself, well, she's going to win this. If she wins this, you know, anything can happen in a semi-final. You don't know what's happening on the other side of the draw. But I, I again, you know, not I wasn't prophesying that she was going to win the US Open, but I, you just thought, well, she's turned this match around. She's really on top here now. Um, and you get into the last four, anything can happen. I mean, this really, this really could happen. Pinch yourself. Mm, it definitely was a, a pinch self moment. Um, I remember. I mean, we were watching obviously back home in the UK. Um, where were where were you for the final? Were you were you in the stadium? Uh, you know, what was what was the atmosphere like? Over uh, there? Well, I mean, the, the atmosphere was fantastic. The build up to it, you know, it was electric, um, and, and it really caught the imagination locally. I think it caught the imagination far more than say had the number one and number two seeds been in the final. I think it was just these two sort of very you know bright teenagers uh, who had a lot about them a lot to say um you know come from a bit from nowhere both of them um relatively speaking uh and there was there was a huge amount of you know it takes quite a lot to get new yorkers kind of impressed and excited but there's you could feel that in the air yeah it was a really unexpected final i feel like we whenever a women's draw comes around at a grandstand we say you know anyone can win it and i think you know the us open in in 2021 certainly typified that with with radicani getting to the final alongside you know fernandez i mean they were both both teenagers and for radicani i think for me what was so impressive was the fact that all her matches were straight sets victories and I was always sort of nervous going going through, you know, by match by match of like, you know, if she dropped the first set, how would she react to being in a position where, you know, she's you know, she's losing, feeling up against it, having that adversity. Were there any kind of moments on, the, on that journey when you were kind of like wondering, like pinch myself, is this is this really happening? Well, I'd, I'd sort of got used to the idea because I, I remember thinking early in the match against Sakari that she was going to win. Um, and I, I, I thought she was favourite for the final, partly because I thought Fernandez might be a bit tired. Yeah, because she had kept coming back from like that sub. Yeah, match. she'd had some big wins, um, but they, they were very taxing. A lot of her matches, and I, I just thought they matched up quite well from Raducanu's um, point of view. So I wasn't actually surprised that she won the final. But obviously, still the the overarching emotion was. Can you believe? Um, can you believe that this this has just happened? In fact, I mean, just on the book that I sort of originally set out, I suppose, to do a sort of thing about you know pretty much the U.S. Open and a bit of the lead up to that, and then I sort of realised that you had to tell kind of the whole story, a bit of how she got there, you know, long term sort of thing. 
um, because it, I don't know, it just felt like this was the completion of a, I mean, everyone has a journey, you know, to winning a Grand Slam, but it, you, it sort of felt like the story wouldn't be complete unless you'd sort of got into a bit how she got there in the first place. Yeah, and I suppose it, it must be, well, it must be the first book written about Emma, I, I would imagine, um, you know, in, in her early career. But what she's... It's not, it's not actually. Is it not? A, oh, okay. No, there was, a, there was actually a children's book um, okay. that came out um, before that. But I think it's the first sort of, and that's not to denigrate the other book, by the way, um, but it, it's it's the first attempt to sort of join the dots together, I think. Mm, yeah, of course. And I mean, like you said, it's it's always interesting and informative to go back to, to where it all began in her early years and you get a real sense of, of Emma through the pages. I mean, just before we move on to kind of looking at her career since then, where would you rank her winning the US Open in terms of British sporting achievements, like thinking across the board of, you know, British sport generally? I mean, it's obviously got to be kind of right up there, but is this, where would you put it on the scale? I mean, you know, I can't claim a monopoly of knowledge about every sport going but it's got to be up there as as in terms of surprises it's got to be up there with anything top of the charts I mean some people compared it to Leicester City um obviously a very different sport team sport and all that uh and and obviously that was a, a when they won the Premier League that was a huge thing a huge surprise um but they had some pretty good players and they were still paying pretty good money. Um, but I mean, it's really, I mean, it's absolutely in terms of an out of the blue thing. The short answer is I can't really come up with anything. <laughs> yeah, I'd yeah. agree. <laughs> just, just on that. I mean, the one thing that did what was a, a bolt out of the blue for me was the fact that she split with her coach. What felt like a few weeks after getting to the final becoming us open champion, what was your immediate reaction to that? Were you, were you surprised by that? Or or actually, did you think, actually, given, you know, her innate desire to understand, you know, her appetite for the game, did you feel like it was an inevitable an inevitable change? Or were you kind of taken back by that that moment? I didn't I didn't think it was inevitable. Um I wasn't I wasn't a hundred percent surprised, put it that way. Um not because I had any particular inside knowledge of the situation but I I just thought and it should be said that he wasn't Andrew Richardson wasn't sacked it was just that the deal that they'd struck had come to an end and it wasn't renewed um he's obviously done an amazing job um in those circumstances um but no it, it wasn't 100% of a surprise I think it was a mistake on her part because um and, and I, I th- yeah, that's not being wise with hindsight because you could just tell the noise around her at the time was enormous and it would have made sense, um, you know, just to kind of, as a holding pattern, perhaps for six months afterwards, not to have made such a big and controversial move. On the other hand, I've been around the game long enough to know that um, coaching is a very personal thing and it's an individual sport and different strokes for different folks um it's also quite ruthless isn't it (laughs) it is ruthless Uh, um (coughs) excuse me um it is pretty ruthless you know i think there's quite a ruthless side to emma probably um 
and this sort of massive desire for self-improvement. Um, but I think I think she would have been better off sticking with it for six months. However, you know, you don't really, I don't think perhaps anyone other than perhaps her and her father could know the, you know, exactly how they were feeling or how Emma was feeling inside at the time. So I'm kind of second guessing that. Yeah. And I mean, since the US Open, you know, there's been a lot of chat around the sponsorships that she signed, you know, obviously suddenly metamorphosed into into being a global star and, you know, lots of deals coming her way. Um, and, you know, it's understandable that you'd make the most of that. But there's been certain people, critics who have said she's too focused on off-court activities, sponsorships. And, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, her results on court haven't been you know as as high in terms of achievements as as the US Open and what's your opinion on on the influence of of all those sponsorships you know do you think that's that's the reason why she might have struggled or do you think it's just you know the physical injuries and and obviously just life on tour and her age and her her relative inexperience despite the the two slams last year I think she would have struggled anyway even if she hadn't signed a single deal um I don't think it's it's sort of being the deal breaker, if you like. Um, I mean, I do think it does add to the pressure. I I really don't begrudge, you know, athletes in any sport um, trying to maximise their income. I think that's entirely understandable. But there are degrees and you do wonder if this is slightly a case of short-term gain for long-term pain because these contracts, they are going to take a bit of servicing. I, I have to say, I've not seen or heard from people that she's taken her eye off the ball in terms of work um, and that she's kind of skipping training to go and do a photo shoot. I've not seen or heard any evidence of that at all. I think it's a bit a bit more that it kind of, you know, loads up the pressure aspect of stuff. And and going forward, you know, there are going to be some commitments um, that, that might not be 100% conducive. But if you're asking, do I think that the sort of the fact she hasn't massively trained on is to do with the endorsements? Um, I, I, if, it, if it's to do, if that's a part of it, I th- actually think at this point it's a small part of it, but we'll have to see going forward. It's funny the, the the way you speak about it. You know, we're speaking about how you know she's got this insatiable appetite to keep learning and improving. And if that you know that is motivating you, it feels like that would be very much against stepping off the court to go do a photo shoot with a a sponsorship. So yeah, my my feeling is I, I don't I don't feel like that's the case, and it's just something that you know, people want to kind of clamor to and 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 just and just highlight. I mean, going into this season. We're coming up to kind of the year anniversary of you know her U.S. Open triumph, which she will obviously be going into as defending champion. Where are your thoughts at the moment? Like a, a year on from you know her ultimate triumph in her career so far, in terms of you know what she's done since then and what she should be looking to do going forward. Well, I, the, the, the the coaching thing, as I said, I think is is a very personal thing, and different strokes for different folks. Um, the thing I have been a bit surprised about is um, the fact that there hasn't been more of a focus on a sort of settled um, 
physical team around her um, because it's not like she can't afford it. Um, and a sort of long-term performance plan, if you like, that seems to be a bit of an absence, um, an absence of that. Um, and, and I, that that's actually surprised me more, I think, than some of the coaching stuff. Um, I, I do think life will get easier for her once the US Open is over and done with. I, I wouldn't be surprised. There's not actually that much of the season left after the US Open, but in the once that's out of the way, I think you'll start to see improvements. I mean, her game at Wimbledon clearly was was underpowered against a very good performance by, uh, albeit by Caroline Garcia. So there's still it's still a quite a big work in progress. Um, but she's basically got way ahead, probably of what people would have projected, you know, in terms of her trajectory, uh, and she's got quite a lot of catching up to do, certainly physically. And it does slightly worry me that there doesn't appear, possibly as we speak, that something has been put in place. I don't know, but... Um... It does It does feel like this season we've seen a lot of... I mean, we've seen a lot of really physical battles. She's been... I think she was involved in one of the longest matches on the tour this season, but she's had a few retirements and, and no-shows at tournaments because of injuries that, yeah, it does... It does feel like there needs to be some sort of sterner, under-the-microscope look at a, a physical plan. Well, I mean, you know, in terms of, of someone taking a sort of firm overview of the physical side of things and, you know, with all this will-she-won't-she-play-Wimbledon and the, the management of that injury, yeah, there, there, does, there does seem to be a missing link there somewhere. Um, that That would slightly... You'd perhaps want to see evidence of a sort of long-term physical plan or performance plan in place. I mean, that's that's something I would like to see. But this was always going to be probably quite a tricky year, and I don't think people should panic about Emma Raducanu. Are you waiting for the the Andy Murray style show my arms at, at Wimbledon moment for well, Emma to answer her physical critics? I wouldn't be surprised if if that happens, um, but. <laughs> Whereas I think Andy kind of had a bit of a wake-up moment about that and realised that he needs to work harder. I think she actually kind of knows it already. Um, it's just putting everything in place to achieve that. And it may take some time. As I say, I don't think this was probably going to be a particularly easy season for her. Um, I think if she's not training on by Wimbledon next year, I think that will be more of a concern. Yeah, we see it so often, don't we, as well, and on the tour players breaking through, and you know, it's it's so difficult. I mean, the 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 pressures and the struggles, both mental and physical, that you must be under. I think, all in all, she's done remarkably well, really, and I certainly wouldn't want to be under that spotlight. And um, you know, you've chronicled her story fantastically well up to now, and perhaps you'll be writing uh, another book, <laughs> maybe in a few years' time. When well, when there's no plans for it as yet, but uh, <laughs> okay, who knows. Well, We'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, so we do have a couple of listener questions before we finish um, shortly for you, Mike. So um, Laura got in touch with us via Twitter. Um, she just wants to know, and these are just general tennis questions now, nothing to do with um, Emma Raducanu. Um, Laura wants to know what your favourite tournament is to attend on the tour and why uh, that might be. Oh, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> I, I, I tell you, the, the, the tournament 
I really enjoy and I would recommend people go to because it's it's actually not as expensive probably as people think is the Monte Carlo Open. Um, the men's event in April, it's just a really old school. The, the setting is stunning. It's clay court tennis, which, which I personally like um, in a great part of the world. And there's, there's kind of a, a I mean, I'm assuming you're we're going outside the Grand Slams here. We're sort of taking those as red. Um, oh yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> any any tournament you could yeah. pick a challenger event if you wanted. Yeah, I mean, I, I Monte, Monte Carlo is terrific. Um, uh, a lot of people like Rome. Um, that's that's a pretty spectacular stadium. Uh, I mean, Indian Wells is a place that I mean, not many Brits get there, but it's uh, that's a pretty amazing kind of money no object. Um, I quite like going to the small places here. Tell you a really nice little tournament. It's a bit ruined by the fact that crowds actually got stopped going there halfway through. It was the one in Cluj in Romania that actually Emma went to. In uh, I quite like going to sort of funny new places like that. Um, you know, Prague for the Billie Jean King Cup. That that was a sort of quite an interesting uh, nice trip. Um, I mean, I was tennis is best, really, with, <laughs> with um, yeah. lots of great places uh, to go to. But certainly a personal favourite. I always used – the few times I went to the Hamburg event back in the day, thought Hamburg is a very underrated city. But probably if you're putting me on the spot, Monte Carlo. And we also had a question from Johnny who got in touch with us on email. And he asked, what's the one thing you would change on the ATP and WTA tours and why? Um, well, I think there's a few things. Um, I suppose to pick one is that I think tennis has got a problem in terms of its relationship with modern attention spans and... I think there's far too much dead time in matches. Um, and I think they really need to look at ways of speeding things up. Um, possible rule changes like a shot clock between first and second serve. Um, perhaps fewer changeovers, that kind of thing. Fewer toilet breaks, fewer dodgy physio breaks. Um, just the whole thing kind of in this day and age, I think has become a bit ponderous. Um, you know, do people, I mean, I, I had some friends who they're not within the tennis industry. They, but they love tennis. It's their absolute passion in life came to the French open. And I think they sort of set one of the matches on their court was four hours and 40 minutes. And they, no one I know loves tennis more than these people. And even they found it, that far too long i mean they they just felt that was too long for a, um i mean the world's most popular sport lasts 90 minutes and you know tennis the, the times of matches routinely are going even three set matches going three hours it's too long there's a few things I mean, we could talk about it all night but yeah it could be a whole episode <laughs> yeah i mean it's unpredictable, but sometimes that's just not practical, is it? I, I get where you're coming from. Tie breaks at five all. Mm, yeah, yeah. 
That's what my my dad does that when he plays tennis up the road. He just <laughs> they don't play proper sets. They just make up the score as they go along, basically. Um, I mean, just one last question, Mike, before we um, finish for the night, and that is um, totally unrelated to tennis. But we ask this of all our guests. Um, we do have a tennis weekly brew board uh, because we both love our tea very much on this podcast. So um, yeah, it's a very British question, I suppose, um, and that is just how do you take your tea if you drink tea at all? Are you a, a builder's tea uh, fan? <laughs> I'm a great proponent of green tea. Oh, okay. Um, what I do is that I buy it uh, loose leaf from our local Korean supermarket. And I have a actually a teapot. And every morning I have loose leaf green tea and I squeeze. Uh, this makes me sound like a health freak, which I'm not, by the <laughs> way. I'm far from it, actually. But I do like... Um, loose leaf green tea with a bit of lemon squeezed into it. Oh, that sounds very nice. And I've got into green tea lately. I know where you're coming from. And it's I don't, I don't mind builders, <laughs> but builders tea. But I, yeah. I actually been a long term green tea drinker. And the best way in for me anyway is loose leaf with a bit of lemon squeezed in. Okay. Okay. Well, now we know. Um, Mike, thanks so much for coming onto the show to talk about your book, Emma Raducanu, When Tennis Came Home. For any of our listeners who fancy getting a copy for themselves, where where is it available? Is it on? I assume it's on. Is it on Amazon? Uh, well, it's, it's it's on Amazon. Or um, I was in Waterstones the other day. There was a pile of them in there. I don't know if they've been. <laughs> that means they haven't been bought or not. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but I mean. It shouldn't be, in theory, hard to get hold of. Well, listeners, we'll make sure to put the link in the description if you want to buy a copy of Emma Raducanu, When Tennis Came Home. But for the meantime, Mike, thanks so much for coming onto the show. It's been wonderful having you on. Really, really appreciate you taking the time this evening to talk to us. Well, thanks for having me. Listeners, remember to subscribe to Tennis Weekly on whatever device you listen to us on. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all major podcasting platforms out there. You can also listen to us on the DownloadTennis.com app. And if you like what you're hearing, then make sure to leave us a rating and comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Tennis Weekly Pod. Or you can email the show TennisWeekly at gmail.com or check out our website www.TennisWeekly.com co.uk and we will be back next time at tennis weekly hq for our latest tour catch-up so i hope you can join us for that but in the meantime it's goodbye from me and kim and we'll see you again soon